this is what is missing in pharmacy. You walk 50 feet back and fill a prescription. Are you today's winner or loser in the U.S. supply chain? Are you suddenly charged more or less? And you don't even know how much more, how much less, because you've never seen price or no one understands what price is. And I, I go back to my earlier comment, even the federal government has a tough time understanding what real price is. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Imagine if all medications work like Tylenol, their prices stay the same for all customers, regardless of insurance type or employer. Co-founder and CEO of Capital Rx, AJ Locano, is making this a reality by revolutionizing the role of PBMs. AJ realizes the complexity of the drug pricing market for average consumers. He understands that many lack transparency and take advantage of uninformed payers by changing and raising medication prices. At Capital Rx, AJ is sticking to his Tylenol rule. By giving everyone the same prices, Capital Rx is fostering better patient engagement, outcomes, and services. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Ajay. Thanks for joining me today. Wonderful to be here, Christine. Hope 2023 has been pretty good so far. Off to a fast start, but uh, no complaints. Yeah, that's good. So I thought I was looking at your past experience. Uh, you spent a lot of time in healthcare, but I thought your career quite interesting. You dabble a little bit on something that's not in healthcare. Tell me more. What's your journey and that brought you to the founding of Capital Rx? Yeah, I think uh, for many people in healthcare, you may trip or end up here on some level. Uh, I think, to be fair, some people that are younger than me, there are wonderful programs that kind of help guide people into healthcare. But, you know, if you went back in time into college, very few of my friends would be like, hey, I can't wait to get a job at this carrier or <laughs> to go into business, you know, with this health system. And so I, I think outside of traditional professional careers, be it teacher, engineer, doctor, lawyer, et cetera, down the line, healthcare outside of the care end of actually professionally treating or managing a patient is a little bit opaque or unclear to people. And like myself, um, I've always been in software development and I ended up in supply chain software for pharmaceutical manufacturers. Incredibly dry work. I'm going to be honest. I did not believe I had a vision quest or this was my mission in life, supply chain logistics and software implementations for pharmaceutical manufacturers. But what I didn't realize is two things were happening. One is I was receiving a first-rate education in supply chain logistics, drug pricing, and software implementation. I, I think the second thing that was going on was I was very quietly writing a thesis in the back of my head, which is why do things operate a certain way? And perhaps someone who wasn't yet entrenched and someone who's always had a curiosity, I wanted to change things. And so, you know, one day you just kind of wake up and you're technically, I'm 
in healthcare, but in a kind of tangential role. Mm-hmm. So tell me more with that experience with the supply chain that uh, for the drug pharmaceuticals and kind of like, what did you learn from that experience? Sure. What, what, what you found that is the pain points that they, they face? Well, I think there's, you know, a variety of both business experiences and just life experiences. So the first life experiences is this was my first business. So I started as a consultant and I created a consulting practice around supply chain software and solely built it up to 30 engineers. And it was, you know, uh, a little bit of a mom and pop business, you know, I would say. And it's very funny. I had I was working on a larger project, and a partner um, with Accenture actually was on the project with me, and they controlled everything on this project. And they started to notice that myself and my folks were being deployed more and more in the same locations on the same plant side deployments. And they called me in for a meeting, and they were interested in buying my company. And I was like, "Oh, this is fascinating." And they bring me into the room and they say, you know, I see kind of your business plan and where you are and how you're ramping to growth. And they're like, tell me your business plan to go from 30 engineers to 300. And I said, I don't have a business plan to go to. I thought this was success. I thought this was. And he just, I'll never forget this. The partner leaned back on the table and he said, oh, so this is a lifestyle business. And he just, the way he said it with like a little bit of disdain in there, a little bit of grit. And I was like, and I went home so like, and I, you know, we had a pleasant meeting and we finished, but I went home and I just could not sleep. I was like, what is this lifestyle business? Like, wh- why is this bad? And it's not that it was bad, but it was a wake up call. Like, are you doing what you find passionate or are you, what you do is kind of a professional role and it's guiding you to something else. And so, you know, I think that was the personal experience on the business end. I think the other one was just understanding, looking at the database. So I worked for a very large manufacturer was my primary customer. And over eight years, the database of ship two um, you know, addresses. So these would be people that are purchasing drugs from this large manufacturer, literally went from 20,000 entries down to 400. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why aren't we shipping to all these people directly anymore? So health systems were disappearing and pharmacies were disappearing and wholesalers were starting to explode. And w- it was interesting because I started to ask the question and they said, well, it's more efficient. And it's more efficient from the supply chain logistics that people do this better for us for just-in-time inventory and for other reasons. But I started to wonder, is it more efficient or is it just consolidation? Is it another layer in the supply chain? And it started to make me ask questions about, is the supply chain in pharmaceutical manufacturing efficient and transparent? And what I realized is I couldn't see beyond the buyer. Mm-hmm. So once the purchase order went out and it was acquired by and you have a loading dock of drugs and it gets shipped to a wholesaler, I couldn't see beyond that point. I couldn't see what happened at the pharmacy. I certainly couldn't see what happened with the payer or the carrier or the patient. 
And it would literally take me almost a decade to get to the opposite end of the supply chain where I had some very interesting observations. Mm -hmm. So so when that happened, this is when you're still working as a consultant, that the database went from 2,000, 20,000 to 400. Mm -hmm. And then... That's when you realize, well, there's there's a different areas that you did not know that you'd like to know. And tell us, tell me more about what did you know? What did you learn? Well, I think two things. Yeah, I think exactly two things were happening. So one was that business conversation, which is, is this really what I want to do the rest of my life? And the answer was no. So again, thank you to that partner at Accenture um, who kind of shook me from a long nap, perhaps. <laughs> um, but it was an important grounding and an important experience and education I was receiving. I never want to go back and rethink, should I not have done this? I think every moment in your life is a learning experience. And so it was invaluable. But what was happening as it started to bother me is that I couldn't see what was happening down the supply chain. And no one really had a good answer for me. I, I love to ask questions. And people be like, why do you care? <laughs> Sometimes be there, like, hey, we sold it. Like, good job. It cleared the loading dock. It, you know, was built back. Anymore. You know, the APAR is working. Like, wh why are you asking questions, AJ? And I'll be like, well, I just want to know what happens after it leaves. And so uh, ultimately, that business was sold um, to a great company in India. And uh I created another company, and this company was let's address what happens after the wholesaler. Mm -hmm. So this brought me to the opposite end of the supply chain. I created a company that did audit and procurement for large self-insured payers. Now, that's kind of a weird phrase, but mm -hmm. what it is is basically we were helping look at the contracting and pricing guidelines. You notice I don't say prices, pricing guidelines mm -hmm. um, for large payers. So these could be anything from large Fortune 500 companies, municipalities, unions, uh, take your pick. You know, anyone who is managing a pharmacy benefit plan on behalf of patients and their dependents and looking at the agreements. And the first thing that struck me was there are no drug prices in the United States. So the answer that came to me was the opposite of what my hypothesis was, is that pharmaceutical industry behaves just like any other supply chain. I don't care if it's computer chips or bananas, you know, there's some sort of, you know, starting point, be it manufacturing or harvesting for my bananas here. And then there's some sort of wholesaler and it ends up in the hands of the consumer with price transparency around, is this a decent price for this item? And there's a small markup that's going on through the supply chain. And what I discovered very quickly after looking at my first PBM, Pharmacy Benefit Manager contract, these are the entities that administrate prescription benefit plans in the United States, is that these are 50 to 200 page contracts and there's not a single drug price in it. And I'm like, well, everyone else in the supply chain has a price. Like we sold it for a unit cost and the wholesaler has a unit price. And I'm pretty sure even the pharmacies and the health systems have some sort of unit price. But when you get to the last hop in the supply chain, there are no drug prices for the patient or the plan. And this started to sound alarm bells. I started to dig into it. And it gets murkier the more you dig. It's not just that there aren't drug prices. 
that the kind of pricing parameters, these quote unquote guarantees are toothless. There are no guarantees, you know, you know, at the sole discretion of the PBM price is determined by the PBM. And there are very loose guidelines. Like it's a drug classification system. Or this is a brand, a generic, a single source, a multi, a multi-source. It's a DAW handling. It's limited supply definition, specialty. And what was fascinating is all of the plans under just one large carrier or PBM had different definitions. So they couldn't even decide on what a proper definition is. And each carrier in health plan had different definitions. And these are artfully written PBM contracts. They're literally designed to guarantee nothing. Because how can you guarantee everything without precision? You know, I often say, and I use an example, imagine going into a shopping center. You know, you're going to a grocery store. And there are no prices on any of the items in the store until you go to the register. And while you're walking down the aisles, it might occasionally broadcast things like 18% off in this aisle, 70% off in that aisle, 85% off in this aisle. And you go to the register and you total everything up and you're just like, hey, today's basket of goods is $2 million. And you're like, okay. And I come back in two weeks and I have the same, roughly speaking, (laughs) shopping list. And now it's $2.4 million. Like, what happened? And it's this concept of prices were changing. So if you look at claims data in the United States, it looks like drug prices change every hour of every day for every drug. And this is nonsense. And the reason why they're changing is it's artificially being pushed. And it's being designed this way because it creates profitability. If I can spread the price further, I make more money. The other thing that's very unique about this supply chain is the buy and sell side have a gag order that the sell side being the pharmacies, the buy side being the carriers and the large payers, even if the pharmacy could sell at a lower price, they're forbidden to communicate this information. If the manufacturer is able to provide more rebate dollars or more couponing to a patient or patient assistance, it gets cut off. And, you know, back to patterns in economics that haunted me, by the time we got to 2014, the gross-to-net curve flipped in the United States. And gross-to-net is list price for brand and specialty. And what's the net price? Net of rebates, price protection, coupons, et cetera, discount. And what was happening is that because the PBMs and the carriers have become so powerful, powerful through formulary management, pay-to-play economics, you would like to be on my formulary, you'd like your medicine to be obviously received by my millions of people in my population, you will pay and pay in the form of rebates and other incentives. And so what has happened is that, yes, drug prices were increasing in the United States list, but net was negative. Now, if that's the case, and generics have deflated over the last decade, every year, 10, 12% consistently, if all drug prices net are deflating, why is anybody's total drug spend going up, all things being equal? And what it is, is there's this massive rent seeker in the middle that was literally able to take any amount of money. No one could rationalize price because it's so difficult to understand price because it's never broadcast. Often it's the opacity of both your plan design of copay, coinsurance, but more importantly, it's lost in this data of classification mm-hmm. and what the guarantee is going to be is really worthless. And 
what was also happening is all of the payers were being trained to just accept 5 to 7% trend year over year <laughs> compounded. And so if you think about it, the last point I just want to make on this segment is if you went back in time when I started my career in pharmaceutical manufacturing, the entirety of the drug industry was $120 billion, maybe. Today, all in top line, it sits around $600 billion in the U.S. Has our population gone up 5x? No. Yeah. And so what's happening here? And I think this is the you know, real issue with our pharmaceutical pricing industry is even sophisticated payers like the federal government haven't quite figured out a way to get their arms around drug pricing because it's splintered in so many directions and manifested itself into this really murky world where good enough persists or the status quo reigns supreme. And I think what we, as our, myself and my uh, colleagues, you know, our passion was to fix this problem. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping medtech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. So I'm just starting to get help clarify. So oftentimes you listen, you hear in the news like this drug's going to cost 20000 mm-hmm. in what you're saying is that the 20000 is not set price by the pharmaceutical company, but actually is the PBM. Well, I'm saying that the list price is established by the pharmaceutical manufacturer. So they'll say it's 20000 this year and it's twenty one five the next. And but it doesn't mean that's what PBM pay. That's the list. No one pays list price. Unfortunately, this is a horrible statistic. The people that pay list price are usually the most uninformed and typically the poorest segment of our population unless they're protected by Medicaid. Mm -hmm. And so this is what bothered me further is that let's go back to your $20,000 drug. The drug is discounted, let's just say anywhere from 15 to 22% depending upon its class. And then in addition, it will carry a rebate of anywhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 70%, depending upon where it is in its patent life cycle. And so net price of 20000 could suddenly come out the other end at six. Mm-hmm. But if there's someone in the between that controls all prices, and more importantly, controls all communication and the data, Suddenly, they can do a magic trick. They could say that $20,000, yes, is very expensive. And it's 18. Mm-hmm. How would you know? Right, right. And this is the problem. And so they keep the rebate. Well, it's keep the rebate, keep a portion of the rebate, keep a portion of price protection, mm-hmm. discount, take your pick. You know, the emergence of spread pricing, this you know, this concept of I, as the PBM or carrier of access to price X, 
and I'm going to offer it for why. Now, Mm -hmm. that wouldn't be that bad if everyone got the same price. And I I call this the Tylenol rule, which is how should drug pricing work in the United States? Walk into a pharmacy, go to the -the over-the-counter section and reach for a bottle of Tylenol or Advil or eye drops and something magical happens. Doesn't matter if you're insured or uninsured. Doesn't matter if you work for the largest employer or the smallest. It's the same price. Right. And when someone comes in 10 minutes after you, same it's still price. the same price. Next week, it's probably the same price. It could be the same price for six months or so until the buy and sell economics alter that state. And this is what is missing in pharmacy. You walk 50 feet back and fill a prescription. Are you today's winner or loser in the U.S. supply chain? Are you suddenly charged more or less? And you don't even know how much more, how much less, because you've never seen price or no one understands what price is. And I I go back to my earlier comment, even the federal government has a tough time understanding what real price is. I mean, the feds have DOD, VA, 340B, Medicare, Medicaid. And so you have five major schedules of drug pricing, and they differ by north of 150% on brain specialty. So the, the largest, most sophisticated payer by purchasing power is equally uninformed. And right. again, it's because I believe multiple things happened. I, I think one thing is that pharmacy snuck up on us. It went from being like 5% of total healthcare costs to 50. (laughs) In addition, what happened, I believe, is consolidation. You know, that because there's never a bad day in pharmacy benefits, and let, let me make this clear, it is a completely inelastic demand curve. Doesn't matter what happens with the stock market or interest rates, patient utilization holds rock steady. So it will always have the same amount or greater spend as seen by my earlier statistic. How did we go from 120 billion to 600 billion in 23 years? So the next part of it is you have the average cost per script goes up, that list price that's being introduced, but it's compounded by more expensive therapies, specialty, gene and cell therapy. So the average cost is being pulled up. And then you have such a perfect market you don't innovate, you consolidate. It's a natural effect. This market is so great. Why don't I own as much of it as possible? And that's what we saw. We saw 30 mergers and acquisitions that left us with three giant vertically integrated payers. And what's interesting about this is they're publicly traded and they kind of got trapped and painted themselves into a corner because there's no more growth left. You know, let's be fair. They can't buy anything else. They can't buy Humana. It's an FTC violation. Anthem, same FTC violation. Or Prime Therapeutics, it's, you know, Blues Plans, nonprofit. And so, really, there's nothing at scale left to buy since 2017, which was the end of the mega mergers of Aetna CVS, Express Script Cigna, and Optum, who bought Catamaran a few years before. And so this is important because when you're publicly traded, if you don't have a growth store anymore, because it's trench warfare, no one's going to grow 20% population, what's left is you're an earnings story. You must extract more money from the patient and the plan. And this is where I started to struggle with the greater economics of this, which is they're completely misaligned at the end of the day. And so I think it's also an, an incredible opportunity for people to enter the market and to start offering a differentiated product. But this takes an incredible amount of planning, 
of persistence, a methodical strategy to not only think through your own supply chain, but also think about the infrastructure you need to develop, the certification you'll need to uh, service large payers in the country. And for us, you know, we wrote a 10-year business plan and we're at the tail end of year five and we look forward to the future, but there are no shortcuts mm-hmm. in healthcare as well. And yeah. You know, you have to start from humble beginnings and grind your way up to relevancy. (laughs) So I want to go back to what you were saying earlier, that the pay to play, Mm -hmm. that they want to have access to the numbers of members and then the gag order, like they, they have that gag agreement, they don't share. That is just an understanding that they follow there's no rule of law that they cannot share with everybody. Well, it's contractual law. Right. So, so then- let, yeah, let's let's start, you know, so pay to play economics, you know, it was, I feel uh, that it was an offshoot of spread pricing. So we hit the 21st century and PBM say to payers, I have a wonderful new product for you. There's no more in an admin fee. So PBMs, you know, in the 90s and earlier, charged a flat administrative fee, like, hey, for a dollar, I'll process your prescription or $2 per script. And they didn't make any money on fulfillment. You know, they were administrators. And then when they entered the 21st century, they came up with a brilliant marketing ploy. And they said, there's no admin fee, but I keep a little bit in the middle. And so they started to spread the pharmacy. And then they built their own mail facilities and started to spread. And they obviously either built or invested in specialty facilities and again, started to spread. But then they started to look at manufacturer-derived revenue. And this is where all their growth exploded. So the year probably is 2004. And they're saying to themselves, hey, if we were to say charge your competitors, they're in a room full of pharmaceutical manufacturers, and just say, there's six of you in this room. And four of you are going to have co-pays of $20. The other two, you're going to pay $35. But to be the four that are just going to pay a $20 copay, not this differential tax of $15, you have to pay me more money. Probably in line with that $15 or more. And pharma aided hook, line, and sinker. They're like, oh my God, this is amazing. I'm going to win because... I'm going to beat out my competitors. But what they didn't realize is you might be this year's winner, but next year someone's going to be like, I'm tired of losing. I'm going to outbid them. Mm -hmm. And it was so good around 2011, 2012, the PBM industry evolved and said, what if I take the same six manufacturers and sit them down in a room in this therapeutic category, you all have drugs in here that treat this ailment. And they say, three of you are going to leave the room. You're not on my formula. You're fully excluded, not covered. You're out. The three of you get to stay. What's that worth to you? I'm thinking two or three times what you paid me before. Mm-hmm. And rebates exploded. And people often say, oh, PBMs don't do a good job of reducing drug prices. No, no. PBMs do an amazing job of reducing drug prices. They just don't pass it to anybody else. <laughs> they pass it to themselves. You know, I say this all the time. Do yourself a favor. Pick your favorite stock tracking, you know, program, you know, Yahoo Finance, Google, and put in the six or so, seven or so largest pharmaceutical manufacturers in the world, Merck, Pfizer, Sanofi, take your pick, put them all there and track their stock price from 2000 to today. They are flat. 
Now I want you to throw in Cigna or United, and it's off the chart. And people are going to be like, well, it's unfair. They have other revenue. It's, you know, they're, they're medical as well. And I'm like, it's 50 to 60% of their earnings is pharmacy. It's, and think about it. Medical spend is five times larger than yeah. pharmacy. And so it's a disproportionate share because it supports anything. If you were to speak to a medical underwriter, they'd be like, I'm lucky if I break even. It's pharmacy where we make all of our money. So, so help us understand. So like, you're, like earlier you're saying, a lot of the healthcare companies that buying the PBM, right? And so they are getting the premium for the health plan. And part of it is also providing a lot of the drug side. And so help us understand, isn't it for them? Well, that's why they're good at lowering their costs. But they don't pass it on. And so what also happened is there will be carriers. I mean, think of large carriers like, like Anthem. They don't process their prescriptions. You know, CVS does. Before that, it was Express Scripts. Mm -hmm. And so vertical integration saw two things happen combined with consolidation. So the PBMs have these tendrils that reached out and they're processing prescriptions for regional health plans, regional health carriers, blues plans, and even large organizations and what was very interesting during this period of time is they also started to buy everything else. And so suddenly you have a situation where it's not just the claims that they touch, it's the purchasing power that they have through this greater establishment. So they're reducing drug prices and they're doling out pieces of it, not all of it, back to your $20,000 drug. And they might be like, you know what, for you know, my people, you know, I'll keep 26%. For these other people, they're uninformed, I'll keep 50%. I'll keep 35%. And so the problem is, it's one, it's this overly complex, opaque contracting and reconciliation process that is absolutely no guarantee on performance. And, and, and an easy way to clear this up is when people be like, oh, I ran this RFP and I'm going to save 20% with this carrier or this PBM. I'll be like, the people that are running the RFP are not at risk. So it's not as if like, hey, I'm the consultant. I say you're going to save 20%. You don't save 20%. You're going to come after me dollar for dollar. And where is the truth in projecting cost? And I say it's with your friendly neighborhood actuary. If any employer in the United States or any benefit provider in the United States were higher in actuary. I don't care what industry you're in, what you do, and say, I need you to forecast what my drug spend is going to be next year. They're at risk. They're doing actuarial assessment now. Mm -hmm. No one is going to say negative. They would be crushed. You know, think about CMS estimates, plus five, the average book of business trend for people that report, say, three to four, and that's cherry-picked data. Mm -hmm. Nobody's saying negative. Yeah. So how could anything be negative? And it's negative through this absolutely absurd process, as I said, of classification and no prices and averages over the year and no one sees drug price. And it's wrapped in this model. And you, you asked a, a great question. It's like this, what is this gag order in contractually 
you know, because these PBMs and carriers became so powerful, they say, you can't cross me. You can't mm-hmm. tell people what price is. You, bear, you can't get your data if you're a payer. You can't look at rebates. I mean, we, also, we used to joke at my old company, when we used to do rebate audits, we would go into a room and we weren't allowed to bring any electronic devices into a room. I mean, imagine going to you know PwC or Deloitte and they're going to do your financial auditing and be like, I'm sorry, you can have no electronic devices for your audit work. They would be like, uh, how does this work? Do you supply us with an abacus or two? And so it, it, it's, it's absurdity stacked on insanity. And I found it fascinating, again, that no one wanted to ask the tough questions or take anyone to task. Like, no. Like, but I think at the same time, maybe people, it's really complex. It's hard to understand. And I think it's uh, also everybody have the self-interest. The status quo worked really well for some. And the one oh. that doesn't work for them, they're not well informed. So like mm-hmm. what you're saying. So my question, when you think about the government, I mean, is like they're one of the largest payer. They maybe they should think about themselves creating their own PBM then. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's the idea of a single-payer system. I mean, you're still going to need someone to administrate it. And I always say we built our model to be future-proof. I mean, Mm -hmm. our organization at Capital Rx, we don't make money on drugs. We don't own any fulfillment assets intentionally because the moment you get into the fulfillment business and the moment you make money on drugs, you have a massive conflict of interest as an Mm -hmm. administrator because you inherently make more money on more expensive drugs. Mm Mm-hmm. So how can you be completely unbiased in your formulary and clinical decisions? And so for us, we wanted to go back to the way the industry started, which is a flat admin fee. We actually are kind of unique as a PBM. We do not set price. We have a single ledger of pricing. I don't think pricing is proprietary. <laughs> and I, I think one of the things that we always focus on is we use NADAC pricing, National Average Drug Acquisition Cost. It comes from CMS. And we don't set or establish price. You know, our job is to administer and allow the different pharmacies that participate in our network to broadcast price. If they want to have a price lower than NADAC, they can do it. But at the minimum, they have to hit NADAC. Mm -hmm. And this is an important concept because all of our customers get the same price. Back to that Tylenol rule, Mm -hmm. you know, which is no one should be unfortunately disadvantaged because they don't have information or they're perceived to be small. It's a horrible system that's long overdue to change. And Mm -hmm. I think going back to kind of like, well, why didn't it change? I think a lot of people made a lot of money on the products that are out there today. I think in addition, you have this kind of generational ignorance, you know, which is my boss said it was okay, so I think it's okay. I mm-hmm. also think there are scenarios where people are become parts in an assembly line and no one is high enough up to see exactly how the business model works. It was funny. I recently, our company won an award and it was kind of ironic. The person who gave us the award was one of our competitors, <laughs> a large carrier. And these people came from the medical side. And when we started talking about PBM, they had no idea how PBM worked. And 
a few of them later on, you know, said to me over the course of the evening, they're just like, I'm almost embarrassed where I work if this is true. And I go, and, and it's, it's, it's fascinating because if you told an executive like, hey, we spread price and unfortunately we take money away from poor people because we spread Medicaid pricing. Well, uh, most people would be like, <laughs> I don't think that represents the values of myself, you know, or, hey, we have the ability to give everybody a reasonable price, but if we can, anytime we can, we take advantage of them and mm-hmm. we'll give them a worse price. You know, I, I, I point this out all the time is there should be no such thing as a discount card in the United States if carriers and PBMs just did their damn job. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about it. The reason why there's a discount card is because they have a 96% chance a consumer will take any price at the register. Those are amazing casino odds. Mm -hmm. And so if we're so uninformed and we're just willing to take anything, let's just ratchet it up. And you know what's fascinating is even if someone doesn't take that price and moves to a discount card, who's behind the discount? The same carriers (laughs) are offering their network. So they're like, Hey, I can make 20% if it's, you know, I do the primary transaction, but even if I don't catch it, I'll make 10% on the discount card. This is all good. Yeah. And and it's only on 4% or 5% of the transaction, so they don't care. And so, yeah. you know, yes, supply chain is complex. Pharmacy benefits are complex. Claim administration is complex. But the ideas are simple and right in front of you. And it just takes a moment to pull back and say, this is truly insane. It must stop. And it's unethical. Mm-hmm. And the other reason why I say it's unethical is I make this point all the time is in the United States, you can't mark up a medical procedure. You can't be like, all right, uh, I got a contract and today your knee replacement is 22,000. Yours is 34. Yours is 36. It, but why can we mark up prescriptions? Mm-hmm. And Although there is agreement between the contract between the procedures for different uh, plan for different procedures versus if you pay cash too. Completely agree. But if I'm a carrier managing a plan and two people are having a new replacement on oh, the yeah. same day, I can't I can't mark up the price <laughs> for someone else. Yeah. So maybe if you could, uh, this is a good segue. You touch on a little bit about Capital RX. If you can uh, explain to us, like how you're like a clearinghouse. So tell us more how you're different from the PBM out there, and yeah. what, why you want to go this route, and why this is something that you really passionate about. Well, I I think it's the one market that's inefficient in the United States. You know, buyers and sellers freely communicating on price defines an efficient market. And we clearly don't have that in prescriptions. So I'm passionate about it because I've spent my entire adult life at this Mm -hmm. point on drug spend and drug pricing and claim administration. And so what makes us different are two things is one is this notion of a clearinghouse, you know, the buy and sell side freely communicating on price. I often say, what's the most famous clearinghouse in the United States, the New York Stock Exchange. And I walk right by it every day on Wall Street on my way to the Trade Center where offices. And that's the basis of efficiency. But I wanted to take it a step further because what's missing is people say, oh, I am transparent. You're not unless you're willing to make pricing 
open. It's not proprietary. And you have a single ledger. So you have one set of books. The buy and sell side share the same books because you're not making spread or any difference in between. So if you're willing to give to your customer the reimbursement, the 835, which is the payment from the PBM or carrier back to the pharmacy, Mm -hmm. you're able to prove, one, you're not keeping anything, but you have to do it for all your customers. And what you could see in this is you could see that everyone's being reimbursed the same amount. I had a consultant that couldn't believe it. They were just like, there's no way you're hitting this guarantee this accurately. And I go, it's so easy because we're not changing the price on anyone. And we're giving everyone the same price. Like, there's only one way I could say it. And, you know, we brought him and his practice in. And we sat them down, pulled the A35s, pulled the transactions. The reason why I brought them in is because we wanted them to see anyone could put anything in a spreadsheet. I'll yeah. be fair there. And that if you're pulling it from the system and you're seeing live transactions, you're seeing the A35 and you're seeing the reimbursements and you can pull historically the files to match, And they were blown away. They're like, you're giving every customer the same price. And I go, yes, Mm -hmm. that's the Tylenol rule. That's a single ledger of reconciliation. And this frees you to focus on better patient engagement, better outcomes, and better service. And this became our calling card as we Mm -hmm. developed this single ledger. And really interesting things started happening. One, because we're passing 100% of the value to any payer, large or small, you're seeing negative book trend back to that gross to net. You're seeing negative book of business trend, which is so you're actually saving them real money, not projected money, not inflation adjusted, but real year over year per member per month cost is dropping. The next thing is our customer SAT scores went through the roof. So our client side customer SAT score is a 96 NPS. And in the call center, we sit at a 71 net promoter score. And these are industry leading because we are not wasting time to think about, well, what can or can't I show someone? What price could I or I shouldn't give to someone? What data can you have or what do I need to hide from you? And you know, so many people in a traditional PBM are focused on keeping the good times rolling mm-hmm. versus engaging with the patient and providing better service. Mm-hmm. And to do this, because think about it, if you're operating at a fractional amount of revenue, you have to be hyper-efficient. And this goes back to my software development days, this notion of an enterprise health platform, which is it's not just electronically processing a claim and plan, setting up a plan. It's every workflow a PBM does. PBMs do hundreds of tasks from underwriting to implementation, call center integration, call center support, prior authorization, drug utilization review, network management, reimbursement, billing. I can go down a list all day. People are engaged in these things. But how do you pull the labor cost down? It's workflow automation and optimization. It's taking all those friction points out and dropping the cost. And now what you have is the ability to do exactly what we wanted to do, which is give all the money in the supply chain to the patient in the plan Mm -hmm. and operate as an administrator with no conflicts of interest. I just want to do what's best for the patient in the plan, not necessarily what's best for my formulary economics in my bottom line. But again, somebody would say to Ajay, you're running a for-profit business, right? So how do you align that? Sure. There's more than enough money. Yeah, you know, you know, one of the one of my favorite unit economics from last year, because we just recently had a board meeting, was we grew over a hundred percent this year, but I increased our headcount 19%. And that is a unit economic that works, but I'm going to take it a step further. 
a third of our workforce are engineers. So healthcare companies maybe have one or two percent of their you know headcount. So we're hyper efficient, and a third of our workforce we're a software company. We're part software company, part PBM, and the fact that we can operate so efficiently, you can operate profitably. Mm -hmm. Like, and this is what I'm saying is PBMs for decades operated as flat fee administrators. You can do it. The other thing I want to point out is people say, can you give me an example of another industry that operated this way? I like to use finance because I always feel like finance is 10 or 15 years ahead of everyone else because there's so much money in it. But think about it. Once upon a time in the year 2000, if you traded a stock, someone could keep 10% of the value of the trade. It almost sounds criminal when I say that out loud. <laughs> and then people like Ameritrade and E-Trade said, I'll do it for $59.95 or $29.95. And Fidelity and Charles Schwab jumped right. in and said, I'll do it for $9.95. And right. now even in my Chase account, it's zero. Zero, yeah. How did and you do that? what happened there? A complex, unapproachable, opaque process was suddenly made approachable because someone was signaling to the market they were willing to give a fair price. And this is what's happening with pharmacy. It's myself and other people in the supply chain. And the culmination over the next five years is we are going to be, if we were to do this interview again in five years, it's going to be a very different world, pharmacy mm -hmm. benefits. And it will be for the better. It will yeah. operate like every other efficient market. You cannot keep a market of this size. I mean, think, uh, this is the other thing. How big is prescription management in the United States? $600 billion. Let me put this in perspective. If you were to look at all of the gasoline industry in the United States, it's 4 to $6 billion, depending upon when you're, how you're doing the calculation. That's it. And people think, oh, we spent so much on oil. It's a drop in the bucket to prescriptions. And that this industry has been unregulated forever. People will be like, well, no, HHS, you know, and CMS, they regulate. Hmm. They regulate how we administrate Part D and Medicaid, but they don't set drug pricing. Right. And the Department of Labor is really under ERISA, the authority that sits above self-insured entities. And they've never had a case that I can recall against a PBM because of price administration. And so... It's an unregulated industry that consolidated way too quickly so and is finally garnering oversight, I hope, from the FTC and the DOJ. Mm -hmm. So do you think, I mean, with all the COVID, everybody started talking about the cost of healthcare again. I think for a while after the Affordable Care Act, people don't talk much about cost of healthcare. Now you see a lot more, more and more people talking about that. Do you think this is another area that... Maybe the government would take a look at it and think about regulation, which probably many people would hate. Yeah, I always want to start off. I think the current administration, the Biden administration, has done a great job with the Inflation Reduction Act and taking a look at trimming the fat through uh, Medicare and negotiating on drug pricing. I think, in addition, the FTC announced uh, mid-year that they last year that they were going to investigate or review the PBM model and the drug pricing model. And I think you just need to spend an hour with any industry expert and they're going to tell you some pretty alarming things. And so I, I think hope springs eternal. I often point out hope is not a strategy in business. So I like to always point out our company is incredibly competitive today in the worst possible economic conditions of this opacity that's running rampant. But 
if the government leans in and makes even modest changes, it benefits anyone who's a clean operator. And that's what makes us very excited about the future. So do you think the current existing PBM felt threatened by Capital Rx? No, I, I don't think so, because I think there's, I always say this to my investors, is most people that work in corporate America, two to four years, and they're moving on to the next thing. They got the next option package. So it's not their problem. Remember, no one's last name is United, no one's name is Cigna, and no one's initials are CVS. Those people who started these companies have long since departed. And so when you no longer have like, you know, like a Elon Musk, who's still entrenched in his business, or someone who was a longtime manager from the early days of a company's success, uh, what happens is, you know, it becomes a little bit tactical. There's no more strategy involved. And they're just, you know, they're focused on their earnings to Mm -hmm. get their options to get out. And so when I, when I say this, are they threatened? The, The first one is, no, they're going to continue to print the money. And so I think for them, they understand that even someone like ourselves that, you know, says, hey, we've clawed 1% market share. They're like, eh. Mm. <laughs> you know, billion. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, yeah, we got the other 99. We're okay. You know what I mean? Like, maybe I'll get alarmed if you get to three. Wake me up. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so I always say is that the market is vast and there's plenty of room for competition. I don't think they fear anyone or anything because they have strong lobby. They certainly are well-connected. They're well-insulated. They're diversified through vertical integration. So I don't think anyone is threatened and no one is thinking long-term. Like no one's here like, I'm going to be here 20 years. This is my company. They're thinking, you know what? I'm going to go where the winds blow me and, you know, the best offer. And, you know, it is a revolving door in corporate America many times in the C-suite. And so I think that is compounding, you know, this kind of cavalier attitude of what do I care? Yeah. So I want to ask you about, I'm sure you got asked all this question uh, about the the cost plus drug and then the way the the taglines always trying to bring down the pharmaceutical company, but actually is the PBM. Yeah, I say this all the time is that uh, the pharmaceutical industry, because remember there's brand manufacturers and generic manufacturers are incredibly generous. You know, generic drugs discount from a manufacturer 98% to 50%. That is the absolute truth. And if you think about pharmaceutical manufacturing, they could discount as much as 70%, 80% into the realm, and depending on the patent life cycle, you know, into the realm of say 50%. You know, if you look at gross to net, you know, each year pharma takes a step down. It goes from 47 to 46 to 45, 44, et cetera. And so that's them giving money into the supply chain. It just doesn't end up in the hands of the patient or the plan or a fractional amount. And so I, I always like to point out that uh, concepts of, of cost plus exist forever. I mean, it's how PBMs buy, effectively. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it's just what's really confusing the American public is I often say we like simple sound bites, the American public. So it's easy to vilify pharma like it's big tobacco. You know, and it's sad to me because think about it. You get an infection 100 years ago, you die without penicillin or antibiotics, you know? And so 
pharma has done an amazing job extending our lifespans and curing us of all some sorts of horrible illnesses or at least lessening the symptoms around it. And so it's sad to me when I see pharma vilified in this way. Now, I'm not going to say they're faultless, and they've certainly had some questionable activities over the years. But what I am trying to say is they are incredibly generous, but we can't see it under the current model, and we have no rights mm -hmm. to it in the current model. And so someone like Capital Rx is a champion to create that efficiency of price and value. And we're also agnostic. So I don't care if someone says I want to get my drug from A, B, or C channel doesn't bother us because we don't make money that way. And more importantly, when someone says, when I want to customize a formulary, I'm not concerned either because once again, doesn't really impact me. It may change your, your pricing, but I'm not losing sleep over it because it's not reducing our money. Right. And this is what's so important because the future of prescription medicine is precision medicine. You know, this concept of a one-size-fits-all formulary is a sideshow of economics for economic gain. But my sister and I, off, I often say are genetically similar, but we respond differently to medication and we have different therapeutic needs. And so precision medicine, looking at what's the need for me is so important, or Christine. And thinking about pharmacogenomics, how do we re respond to certain drugs? You know, I, I think that the era of the one-size-fits-all formulary is going to start to sunset. Yeah. And I think we're starting to see the introduction of precision medicine, pharmacogenomics, value-based contracting. And these things are going to start to take hold because we're looking at how do we improve health? How do we measure health outcomes? And you just can't do it under the old model because you have this inherent conflict of interest. Yeah, no, this is great. So I I, I have so many more questions, so many <laughs> uh, things that I'd like to ask you, but I am running out of time. Uh, usually I even have a question uh, reserved for like, what's your top three lesson learned? Uh, I'm happy to answer it. <laughs> you get <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. And then we can... Uh, end with that. Yeah, sure. So uh, they're all the same, you know. So I know my colleagues are listening. Oh, here he goes on again. But you know, the first one is I say it, and it's trite. Only the spoon knows what's stirring in the pot. Like if you make an assumption, this is how a workflow works. You're now part of the problem. If you don't ask the question and, and roll up your sleeves and get dirty and really look at the problem unfortunately, you're going to miss something. And so every person in my organization from CFO down to a call center associate, I try and instill this principle of if you have the time, have the initiative to ask the question and think about how something works. Because oftentimes you're going to discover something, it can be better, more efficient, a better experience, a better outcome. And I can't tell you, I learn something new every day. <laughs> from this principle. Um, second one is for scale. What I've learned is that you have to be able to trust everybody. And again, down to the associate level, because it's the only way you scale and you have to empower them to make decisions. Like run, run, run. You know, like we're all going to make mistakes. I often say if you put equal amounts of heart and brain power into it, you did the best you could. But what unfortunately, I think holds back companies is when they don't make decisions, is when they don't move forward. And it's because there's a lack of trust. And 
people feel that lack of trust and it starts to cripple their own ability to move forward and make decisions efficiently. And so that would be the second lesson. Third lesson, I'm just going to throw, you know, out my own superstition. Anyone who has ever worked out, work with me is I have learned you're only as good as your last quarter. So no matter how many accolades and pats on the back and everything you may have experienced that tells you you're a great performer, you have to start each quarter and say, I have nothing. I come from nothing. I've achieved nothing. And you know what this does? It gets you out of bed with a fire in your belly and a desire to work hard. But the moment you believe you've made it or there's some mythical line of for safe or whatever, you will crumble. And so people say oftentimes, I never see you enjoy a moment. And it's sad, but I think a lot of really good entrepreneurs live this creed in this sense of, I can't enjoy the moment because the next quarter's here and I'm going to have a board meeting. (laughs) And if I don't hit my numbers and within my budget, and our development schedule isn't on course, there's going to be some pretty tough questions. And so that's my last lesson is just, unfortunately, you are nothing each quarter and you have to rebuild yourself. That's great. Well, thank you for sharing uh, your knowledge and insight about the industry and also the lessons learned. Well, it's been a pleasure, Christine. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.